Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Greg Clark. I'm uh, the lead pastor here and excited to be able to bring, uh, bring God's word to you today. Well, today is a good day. If you've been coming here a few times, you've heard me say that uh, several times. I'm going to ask you a question here that you should have the answer to. Why is today a good day? Because it's spring. That's an answer. Why is today a good day? Because God is good. Right? We have a good God, right? We have a good God. That's why it's a good day. So even when it's winter, even when it's summer or fall, you know, I'm, ex- I'm particularly excited that spring is coming. That's awesome. But w- today is a good day because we have a good heavenly Father. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're in the middle of our Let's Dance series where we're engaging with the Trinity. And we spent three weeks talking about Jesus uh, and we are now in the middle of speaking about our Heavenly Father. Uh, so when we talk about our Heavenly Father today, we looked last week about how Jesus talked to the people around Him and called God His Father, which was shocking for those that are around Him. It was also shocking when Jesus talked about His Father being loving and compassionate and gracious. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were amazed at this. They were surprised. They were, they were actually quite upset about this. Because Satan has always tried to convince the world that, that our God is an angry God, that our God is a, a God who actually dislikes you and waits to torment you and to, to hurt you in any way that he can. But God has time and time again revealed that he is love, that he has compassion for us, that he provides for us, that he is gracious towards us, and that He is our Heavenly Father. Well, today I want to talk to you about a way that we can interact with our Heavenly Father by taking a fresh look at a 2,000-year-old prayer that Jesus taught to us. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was going around the countryside. It was the beginning of His ministry. He was teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. He mostly did that in the churches that were around at the time. They were called synagogues. He healed the sick, he drove out demons, and he gathered quite a large gathering. There there was a number of people that followed after him. In Matthew chapter 5, right after Matthew chapter 4, Jesus sits that same crowd down, and we have the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes. And if you haven't heard about the Beatitudes before, it's that section of Scripture that says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, the blesseds. They call those the Beatitudes. Okay, I want to give you a little side note here for a moment, okay? So we're just going to take a little bit of a sidestep from the message, and I want to talk to you for a second uh, about uh, this, um, something that I find um, in our culture nowadays is maybe pl- problematic. Um, but first, some good news. Um, I love that we all basically can carry the Bible anywhere we go nowadays. It's, it's on our phones. You guys know you can get a Bible app. The Bible app is on your phone, so you can take this anywhere. Everywhere I go, I usually have my phone with me. And if I want to look up a passage of Scripture, boom, I can look it up right there. If I want to read a chapter in the Bible, boom, I could do that pretty easily right here. We, we never used to have this. 
People used to have to carry like whole Bibles in their back pockets or something like that, but we've got the Bible right here with us uh, on our phones. It's awesome. The problem, though, with that is that when, when I sit down to read the Bible on my phone, I see one chapter at a time. So I just read that one chapter, and, and that's it. Maybe I'll read another couple of chapters, but I don't get a picture of what's happening in the big picture of that Bible story. When I'm reading the Bible in, in my, you know, paper version of the Bible, I see that there's words before the chapter, I see that there's words after the chapter, and I get a bit of an idea of the context of where that chapter is coming from. You see, the Bible wasn't written in chapters. That, that's not how it was written. Uh, you, have to re- you have to read within the Scripture itself to get cues and clues as to where the stories start and end. Uh, one of the problems that we have today is, is we usually think, well, chapter 9 of this book is the whole story. But actually, it's very possible that the story started in chapter 8 and that it actually goes on to chapter 10. You have to look in the context of the story, especially in these narrative stories, like in the Gospels, to to see where the stories begin and end. If you read in the Gospels, something that says something like this, at another time Jesus went over here and did this, then you know that the scene is changing. The, The author of that Gospel is going from one story to a different story, and it's kind of the beginning of this new story. However, if you're reading along and you see something that says, while Jesus was still there, a man came over to him, then you know that what happened right before this story is really important to what's happening here. So you need to make sure you know the context of what's going on. And the reason I'm sharing this with you, we're going to come back, so I said we're going to take a little bit of a side. We're going to come back now to what we're talking about here. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because in this story in Matthew, this is exactly what's happening. I already told you that in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was teaching on the kingdom of God. He was healing the sick. He was driving out demons. And there was a large crowd that began to follow him. And then in chapter 5, it's that same story, the same crowd that's been following Jesus is now sitting down on the grass around Jesus, and he's beginning to preach the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount which begins with the Beatitudes. Now, this section of Scripture begins here in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and it goes all the way to Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, and possibly all the way through to chapter 9, verse 8. So it's quite possible, but this, this, this sermon that Jesus is preaching is like five chapters long. It would have taken him hours to preach all the things that he preached. Now, you guys get a bonus today. We're not going to take hours to preach the sermon today, and we're not going to look at this entire section of Scripture. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is because in this section of Scripture... Jesus begins to articulate what he is there to do in the world. And what he's there to do in the world is to usher in the upside-down kingdom of God. The upside-down kingdom of God. So what is the upside-down kingdom of God, you might ask? Well, the upside-down kingdom of God is where the lost are saved, the sick are healed, the demon-possessed are set free, 
The poor in spirit gain the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are comforted. The meek inherit the earth. And so many other upside-down things that are introduced in this section of Scripture. If you're in a place today where you are tired of this worldly crud, if you look around you and you think things should be different than they are right now, if you're feeling a little bit rebellious, if you're feeling unruly or discontent, if you want to deconstruct culture, religion, and the normal messed up way this world works, then, oh man, this section of Scripture is for you. In these chapters, Jesus begins to usher in the upside-down kingdom of God. And nestled right in the middle of these chapters, in Matthew chapter 6, is an anti-establishment, rebellious, culturally provocative prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray. And here's how Jesus starts it. Pastor Amy already let in on this. Here's what Jesus says to begin this prayer that he's about to teach his disciples. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Jesus goes on, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Isn't that great? In Jesus' time, people knew that there were two kinds of people that prayed. And both of these people were amazing people. I loved what, what uh, Jesse shared with us today about, about volunteering in the church, that actually the requirements aren't super high. We've got kind of some super low requirements. And when we pray, we actually have some super low requirements for people praying. It's awesome. Anybody can pray. It's so fantastic. But back in Jesus' day, people knew that there were two types of people that prayed that were special, special people that prayed. There was the one kind of people that prayed that would pray in the synagogues and they'd pray and, the, and they'd pray on the street corners and they'd pray loud and proud for everybody to hear so that everybody would look their way. And there were other people that prayed that, that seemed to go on and on and on and on and on and on. And well, you get the idea, right? They would just continue to talk because they thought that the more that they talked, the more that God would hear them. Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like the guy who's up on the street corner trying to get everybody to look at him. And don't be the guy that just keeps on going on and on and on because these people are not the people you're supposed to be like. Jesus says, I'm going to teach you a different way to pray. And it's a crazy prayer. It's anti-establishment, it's rebellious, it's culturally provocative, and it's exciting. And guess what else? Jesus says you're not going to pray to some far-off God. You're not going to pray to some unrelatable entity. You're not going to pray to some disconnected and disinterested party. You're going to pray to your Father in heaven. This was so crazy when Jesus started talking about our Father in heaven, that's relatable. That's reachable. Fathers are these amazing people. They're supposed to be these amazing people that connect to us and love us and care for us. And Jesus says, you're going to pray to your Father in heaven. This then is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the prayer that Jesus introduces 
to the people. So our prayer begins by addressing our Father in heaven. We have telescopes now that are unbelievable. So many years ago, we used to just have ones that you kind of sit on your deck and look up into the sky, but now they have telescopes in space. They're in space looking out at space. And they've been sending back amazing images of the universe, like the ones that are up on the screen right now. There's, if you look out into our universe, there are millions of galaxies and star clusters and, and planets. There, there, there are stars like our sun out there, but even ones that are like so much bigger than our sun. The biggest star we found to date is a star called UI, UI Scuti. I don't know who comes up with these names, but there it is, UI Scuti. Um, and, and it's so big, listen to this, this is how big this star is, okay? We think the sun is pretty big, and it is, it's big. Like, our earth would fit into the sun like, I don't know, a million times over or something crazy like that, right? So we think our star is big, but this star is so big that our, our sun would fit inside of it five billion times over. Like, there'd be five billion of our suns to fit into this one UI Scooty. It's so big. This is a gigantic sun. It's gigantic. It's huge. And our Father made it. Isn't that cool? Our Father made it. And so He just said, let it be. And there it is. It's amazing. We have microscopes, so on the opposite end, we have telescopes that look out into the universe, and then we have microscopes that are so advanced nowadays that we can see these tiny, tiny building blocks of creation. We can see the, the microverse and how everything holds together. We can see atoms and electrons and neutrons and quarks and all kinds of things. I don't even have any idea what they are. But it's amazing because we look at these things and we can see how God has made this, made this incredibly complex work, world that fits together and holds together. Our Father made this. It, he made it work. He made it fit together. It's no wonder that the first line of our, of our prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Holy is a word we use to describe things that are set apart, that are different, that are unlike anything else, things that are so special and pure and consecrated and dedicated and other. Holy is a word that we use to describe something that's other. This is different than anything else that we have ever possibly seen or understood. This is other, and God is other. He is holy holy. He is, he is way bigger than our minds can comprehend. He is so much different. He is holy, but he's our Father, our Father who is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, which goes like this. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with, with, the, with the other two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The whole temple shook. When these angels called out, holy, 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 
Now, the Old Testament, one of the things that the Old Testament had, they didn't have punctuation. So there are no exclamation marks and things like that. So what they would do, especially in, in, in certain parts of the Old Testament, if they repeated a term three times, it wasn't just that the people were saying it three times. It could be possibly that way. But the, the, the author, because there's no exclamation point, would repeat things three times to put an exclamation point on them. So, so what the author, what Isaiah is saying here that he's seeing in this picture is not just angels saying, holy, holy, holy. What he says here is that he sees the angels crying out, holy, holy. They're just crying out that, that God is holy and the whole temple is shaking at them, screaming, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The temple shook at their call, and that's our Father, who is holy, who is holy. Our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. Well, the prayer continues. Jesus continues on in this prayer. He says, we pray, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you've prayed this prayer before, but I wonder if you thought about what you were praying when you prayed this part of the prayer. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm willing to bet that you might not have thought this through, that you might not have thought of what you were praying at the time, because frankly, most of the time, I don't think we really want our Father's kingdom to come. I think, and this might just be me, maybe this is just my confession to you, but I think that sometimes when we pray, we're actually praying just for our kingdom to come. Just for the things that will comfort me and make me happy to come. The, the things that will fulfill my desires to come. We don't say that, right? We don't say, God, may my kingdom come. But most of the time, we want things to go our way. We want pleasure and comfort and our own self to be ruling we're going to pray, of course, for the Father's kingdom to come, but we want to pray that because we want what's good for us. The problem, though, is when we pray this prayer, we might not actually get what's comforting and pleasurable to us. Praying for our Father's kingdom to come is actually an act of submission. See, we try to make this world better, mostly, through... Uh, uprising and protest or by trying to be involved and active in things or all kinds of stuff. But what we really need is submission to our Heavenly Father. When we pray for our Father's kingdom to come, we are submitting ourselves to His will. We are submitting our will, our plans, our desires to our Heavenly Father's will, plans, and desires. Right before Jesus goes to the cross... Okay, so this is a story that happens much later, later in the book of Matthew. Jesus, before, the night before he goes to be crucified, he, he spends the evening in prayer. And this is found in Matthew chapter 26. It's much later, in the, much later in this gospel. But during this time, Jesus is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by what's about to happen. He knows, tomorrow I'm going to the cross. In fact, he knows this very night I'm going to be uh, arrested and taken off. 
and I'm going to be beaten and bruised, and I'm going to take him to this cross to be crucified. He knows that's about to happen. And right before it happens, he goes down to, uh, down to his knees to pray. And here's what happens. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, how many of you knew that Jesus asked to not be crucified? That Jesus said, I'd rather not do this if that's okay, Father. If there's another way to do this, let's do that. That'd be fantastic. The cross was not an easy thing for Jesus. It was not an easy thing for Jesus. Now, I, I, I cut that verse off that I just read prematurely. You saw the dot, dot, dot there. So let me just continue the verse now. Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Even Jesus had to submit himself to the Father's will. The prayer Jesus taught us to pray 20 chapters earlier in in Matthew chapter 6 is now coming full circle for him. He is submitting himself to the Father's will as he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray this prayer, we're asking for our Father's kingdom to come and for His will to be done and for this to begin in us, for it to begin in us. The prayer goes on. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, there are two possible implications for this part of the prayer. The first is an obvious one. We're asking for our Father to provide for our needs. Now, not our needs like who wants to be a millionaire, not that type of need, because that's not actually a need that we have. We are asking God to provide for today's needs. The obvious picture that would have been coming to the mind of the Jewish people as they heard this, the disciples that were listening to Jesus teach them how to pray, the picture that would have come to mind for them would have been the manna in the desert. Do you guys remember this story as the, the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, there's nothing for them to eat, and every day they would wake up and there'd be manna on the, on the ground, like on the desert floor, there'd be this, this wafer-like food that they'd be able to gather one day's worth to eat. They couldn't gather two days' worth. If they gathered two days' worth, it would spoil overnight. They had to only gather one day's worth. They could only eat the daily bread, the bread that was there for them today. The reason for that was God was trying to teach them that He's the provider, that they were to trust in Him daily, not to try to, to provide for themselves by getting two days' worth, but to trust that tomorrow God would provide for me tomorrow. I don't have to worry about gathering food for tomorrow because my God is a God who provides. So I'm going to wait on God to provide for me tomorrow. That's what the, the Israelites learned or tried to learn back as they were coming out of Egypt. And it's the same type of thing that's in this prayer that God is trying to teach us to trust in Him on a daily basis. That I don't have to worry about what tomorrow's going to bring because God's going to provide for my daily bread today and my daily bread tomorrow. Now, in addition to this reliance on God, there's another implication to this prayer that's not so obvious. Because this line of the prayer follows, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, many scholars believe that this daily bread that we are taught to ask for is not just daily provision, 
but it's a taste of the kingdom that is coming. It's like asking, Father, give us this day a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that is to come. Because it follows, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. It's this request, help me taste a little bit of what that kingdom looks like today. Help me to be able to experience a small taste today of what the kingdom tastes like. It's these two implications that are exciting in this part of the prayer. Not only are we asking for our Father to teach us to rely on Him daily, to provide for us daily, but we're also asking for a foretaste of the kingdom that is on its way. Next in the prayer is forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. Now, do you even know what you're praying when you pray this part of the prayer? Beware. <laughs> Beware. Don't pray this prayer if you're holding offense against somebody. Don't pray this prayer if you currently have unforgiveness in your heart towards another person. Don't pray this prayer if you right now know that there's somebody else out there who so-and-so is a dirty, rotten, something-something, and you're not going to forgive them. Don't pray this prayer. Don't pray this prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, you're praying, Father, forgive me as I forgive others. That's a scary prayer right there. Like, that's a scary prayer. Forgive me the way that I've forgiven other people. Just stop and think for a moment what you're praying. Now, do I even have to preach on this? I'm going to, but Father, forgive me like I forgive other people. Makes you rethink forgiveness, doesn't it? Is there someone in your life that you've not forgiven? Would you dare pray, Father, you know that one person that I'm not willing to forgive? I'd like you to forgive me that way. <laughs> I'd like you to treat me like I'm treating that other person. Whoo, Right? I mean, if, if this doesn't kind of give you a little bit of a shock, you're not listening. You're not hearing what I'm saying. We have a forgiveness tool out in the foyer that you might want to take part in later on. You can grab it later today. But as a part of that forgiveness process, when there's someone in your life that you need to forgive, what, you, what we encourage you to do is to pour out your heart. Pour out your heart and recognize all the crud that this person has brought into your life. Because of what they did, here's what it cost me in my family. Here's what it cost me in my career. Here's what it cost me in my emotional state. Here's what it cost me here and there and everywhere. Lay it all out. Lay out all the crud. This is what's happened in my life because this person has sinned against me. Lay it all out. And then you bring this to Jesus. And you say, Jesus, I know how much you've forgiven me. And because you've forgiven me, I want to forgive them. And then you bless them. Now, that's a really quick version of it. It's not an easy process. We're not talking about someone who cuts you off in traffic. I mean, that should be an easy one to forgive, right? Sometimes people have been purposefully terrible to you. 
again and again and again. And sometimes people have done horrible, horrible, horrible things to you. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you're saying what they did was okay. It wasn't. It was atrocious. And it doesn't mean that you give them access again. Boundaries are really good. Boundaries are really good. So it doesn't mean that you give them, them access to yourself again. But forgiveness does mean that you no longer hold on to vengeance. You no longer hold on to offense against them. You no longer put yourself in the position where you are saying, I am going to get them back for what they did. You place what they did at the cross. And you say, Jesus, this isn't mine to carry anymore. This is yours. Because you've forgiven me, I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to leave it all to you, Jesus. And then here's an important part. In the end... Because you know how much you've been forgiven. You know how much that that God has looked upon your sin and your brokenness and he says, I forgive you. Because you know how much you've been forgiven, you want that for everyone. And you want that for the person that's hurt you. Now, it's not easy. Again, this is not easy. But you receive freedom when you forgive people. And you pray that they would receive that freedom as well that they would come face-to-face with Jesus and experience freedom and forgiveness from Jesus like you've experienced. Then you can pray this part of the prayer. Father, forgive them. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. Finally, Finally, the prayer ends. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we think about life and our relationship to sin, it seems like choosing to do what is right should be easy, shouldn't it? Like it should be easy to choose to do what's right because we know the stuff that we choose to do that's wrong only brings destruction and, and sadness and hopelessness. When we do stuff that's wrong, we know that it's going to have a consequence, don't we? We know that. So we, we, we think that it should be easy to do what's right, and it should be hard to do what's wrong. But, but you guys know that's not true. You guys know it's so much easier to get up in the morning and, and pound back a half a dozen donuts than it is to go to the gym right? And you know the donuts, that's not good. The gym is fantastic, but you know what's easier, don't you? Because doing what is wrong sometimes is so easy, while doing what's right is sometimes so hard. Sin is seductive that way. It's deceptive. It's it's easy. Choosing good and holy and beneficial things, man, that's hard. And it's interesting how easy the bad things get the more we do them. It's like we're training our sin muscles. It's like we're working out the wrong things. I mean, we often just take a little bite of sin, right? In the beginning, it's just like we do a little bit of something that's wrong. Just something little and innocent, something we're like, well, it's just a little thing. It's just a little thing. It's not a big deal. But then after a while, we're belly up to the feeding trough of sin with our faces buried up to our ears. And we wonder, how in the world did we get here? How did this happen? This part of the prayer comes in two parts. Lead us not into temptation is the prayer that asks our Father to stop this before we start. Lead us not into temptation. Help us to stop it before we even get beginning in this, before we even belly up, before we even take the first taste. Help us to stop right there before it even starts. Help me to look the other way. Help me to stand against the attack of the enemy. 
Help me to never take that first innocent little bite. Father, lead me not into temptation. But the other part of this prayer, the deliver us from evil part, that's the part that recognizes that sometimes we end up down the road a bit. That sometimes we're going to be belly up to the feeding trough and we're going to be well into sin. And we're going to look up one day and we're going to wonder, how did we get here and how are we going to get ourselves out of this? Well, Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. The path back from all the brokenness in our life might seem long and hard. And maybe there are going to be consequences here in this world. Maybe there are going to be things. If you break the law, there might be a consequence here on earth. There might be. But the path from destruction to life is not as long as it looks. Jesus, help. It's that quick. Boom. Jesus, help. The path from destruction to life is as simple as saying, Jesus, help. Father, deliver me from evil. See, with your heavenly Father, it's not about pull up your bootstraps and make amends. I mean, that might be something that you should do, but that's not what forgiveness is all about. It's not about performing more good than the bad you've done. It's not about balancing the scales. It's all about Jesus already paying the price for all your brokenness. You just need to reach up and grab your Father's hand. Father, deliver me from evil. Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples and, and taught us as well. And it's a powerful, anti-establishment, rebellious, culturally provocative prayer that Jesus taught during this time of the, uh, amongst the Jewish people. We, we don't think of it oftentimes what it means to us, but it is a prayer that draws us into deep relationship with our Heavenly Father. And it's a prayer that we pray that invites the Father to begin the work in us. Now, there's a little addendum. If you've, if you've been watching this prayer here, you know that there's more. There's like another line at the end of this prayer. And it's actually not um, in the original text. So I think that the King James Version has kind of added it in there, but it, and it'll see, have a little asterisk on it that says, this is not in the original text. It was a doxology that was added to the end of the prayer in the first or second century. So right around, like the early church would have said, you know, this prayer needs a little something at the end. <laughs> and so they just went, let's put a little doxology on here as we finish off this prayer. And the doxology is just this. It's for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Forever and ever. Amen. I want you to stand with me here. And we're going we're gonna to say this prayer again. We said it at the beginning of our service. We're going to say it now. I'm going to invite the worship team. You guys can come on up and be prepared to, to lead us in our closing song. I think the prayer is up there. Yep. So why don't you join me as we pray this uh, this prayer together. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.